The Hunt Quietly movement is fighting to save and restore high-quality, publicly accessible, non-pay hunting for people that do it for meat, hide, horns, and personal enjoyment. We, and by that I mean Jim Durkin, who I'm joined with tonight, and myself, and a few others, uh, our other two guests haven't taken the Hunt Quietly uh, blood oath yet, so I don't want to attribute anything, any of their, any of their beliefs, um, falsely uh, assigned beliefs to them that they don't share. But anyway, we are fighting for the future of hunting by disincentivizing hunting for fame and money. Hunting opportunity is a precious resource. There simply isn't enough of it to share with people that do it for the gram. More critically. Hunting for fame and money leads to greed and killing beyond one's need in the quest for digital content. Most importantly of all, hunting for fame and money leads to the commodification of wildlife, hunting grounds, and hunting opportunity. Hunting TV and social media truly is, at least in my view, 21st century market hunting. But friends, there are other key topics that need to be addressed in our quest to save hunting. And tonight we will be focused on one of those. In a word, tonight we will be discussing habitat. And not just any old habitat. Tonight we will be talking about rangeland habitat. From the Palouse Prairie to the Great Basins, Great Basin to the Great Plains, rangelands comprise half of the land surface of this great country. And beyond the US, rangelands comp comprise half of the terrestrial surface area of Mother Earth herself. Rangeland ecosystems are vital to the American hunter. If you are hunting pronghorn or sage grouse or sharp tail or western cottontail or any one of several other species, you are almost certainly hunting rangeland ecosystems that are managed using rangeland management principles. Even if you are hunting mule deer or elk or moose or mountain goats, there is a good chance you are hunting a land type characterized as rangeland. Basically, if it's not a swamp, a forest, a tame pasture, a crop field, building, lawn, or parking lot. It's rangeland. Another creature that is, is, that is as reliant on rangeland as I am on cheap whiskey and antidepressant medication is bison. And given their historical importance to many Western North American, North American rangelands and the composition of tonight's guest panel, I suspect this animal will loom large in our discussions this eve. Tonight, Jim Durkin and me are joined by Scott Heidelbrink of the American Prairie Reserve, a group focused on maintaining bison on rangeland landscapes of the Northern Great Plains. We're also joined by rangeland wildlife biologist and my dear friend, Kent Unlin. I am a rangeland plant ecologist, so among us, we should be well-equipped to discuss rangeland and grazing management, rangeland restoration, 
threats to rangeland plants and animals and any other rangeland topic that happens to come up. Other topics that might come up include bison hunting opportunity in the U.S. because Jim Durkin has never killed a bison and is exceedingly interested in doing so. And hunting access because American Prairie Reserve owns a lot of land and they allow some hunting. So with that, I wanted to uh, give Kent and Scott an, an opportunity to tell us a little bit about themselves. Scott, would you, would you mind leading off? This is the Hunt Quietly podcast. I'm Matt Ranella. Sure. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, my name is Scott Heiderbrink. I'm the director of bison restoration at American Prairie. Uh, what uh, what we do there is uh, we're working to restore a fully functioning grassland ecosystem in the northern Great Plains. And one key part of that is to get bison back on the landscape. Uh, so my job entails uh, working with neighbors, agencies, uh, partners, and getting bison back on the landscape and then uh, letting them thrive out there. Hey folks, uh, Kent Unlin. I've been a biologist and in the field of natural resources for 30 plus years. Uh, grew up in Northern Minnesota bounced around the country a little bit but did quite a bit of work in the great basin and then landed in eastern montana um done a lot of habitat project work a lot of mitigation dealt with a lot of different uh issues from oil and gas to coal to just about everything so i guess i feel like i'm fairly well-rounded for this talk ideally um, ideally uh yeah uh trained and experience wise you are ideal for this talk so um thanks for having me matt yeah thanks for coming on board yeah so i thought we'd start out by i'd say with all natural ecosystems this is true and now we're talking about one that comprises a large percentage of the land mass of, on the planet by talking about uh, threats to rangelands. Um, and I don't know, Scott, you want to give us an account of what you think the rangelands are, or the threats to rangelands are in the 21st century? Uh, sure. Yeah, I would say to start, uh, you know, development is a big one here in the West, especially in the sagebrush ecosystems. Uh, they're declining fairly rapidly. Um, and then crop cropland conversion, uh, we all know a lot of uh, ground has been turned over and and uh, it seems to continue uh, according to the, the plow print uh, that comes out every year from World Wildlife Fund. Uh, and then I think uh, even with those things, I think, uh, really big threat is also just uh fragmentation you know with uh energy development 
uh, roads, any any kind of development going in that's breaking up these large tracts of grasslands is definitely uh, detrimental to all the species that are living there. Yeah, so Kent has worked a lot on sage grouse, and I know that fragmentation is a big issue with sage grouse. You want to give us a little bit of a sense for that? Yeah, I mean, Scott, I think you nailed it, but obviously that old saying, death by a thousand cuts, really is coming to fruition nowadays. And there again, I guess I've been around long enough, especially like with sage grouse, kind of the icon of the West. We've obviously lost thousands of acres, if not more than that, to everything from the oil and gas to urbanization to, as far as that goes, it's not only sage grouse, but uh, an icon of the West, the mule deer. Look at what mule deer have to go through nowadays to get to their winter ranges i mean there's there's a from the highway to the gas pad to the windmill to the new three million dollar home built in the wasatch front i mean there there's uh there's a lot of of threats that these critters face sage grouse obviously like scott mentioned uh, habitat conversion. We've lost piles of native habitat to crop. And, you know, the homesteaders came west, crested wheat conversion. Guess what? Now we got noxious weeds. It's noxious weeds in Montana is a huge threat, as you guys know. And it's it's becoming bigger and bigger every year. So I guess... Can you- can you go into that a little bit? Because I was reading about invasive species and how the invasive species after a fire will beat the, the, the sage back back and establish it first. Yep. Uh, you know, I know that in south southeast Montana now we've got a species called Bentonata, and I don't know that much about it, but that thing is starting to really creep in from Wyoming We've obviously got spotted knapweed throughout the state and, and post-fire um, spotted knapweed can really kick into some of those, uh, those areas that have burned hot. And honestly, as hunters, we don't always pay attention. We got a lot of hunters coming in from out of state and obviously knapweed now, it's funny, um, how knapweed is even showing up around like the block management sign-in boxes. That's sometimes where you find it. Um, But even me, I've been in Mile City about 22, 23 years. I've seen our noxious weed problem just explode. Obviously, leafy spurge, is throughout eastern Montana on the river bottoms, you know, out competes a lot of the natives. Um, noxious weed problem is only going to get bigger. But there again, this whole thing called death by a thousand cuts, and you guys mentioned fragmentation. That that one word really um, 
tells a story for loss of habitat throughout the West. I don't only worry about sage grouse. I worry about mule deer and a lot of other migratory bird species that are dependent on native range because our native range is honestly, the day's going to come when, and I, and I fear for our grandkids, not only for access, but good native habitat. I mean, humans, obviously, our population is going up every year where we burn more fuel. Yeah, now we're going to do wind and now we're going to do, which I'm, I'm all about the, the, the wind and solar. But guess what? You, you have to put that stuff somewhere, too. And like with wind, you have to have, you got to get that power out. So how do you do that? Well, you got to have power lines. Well, there, it's all fragmentation. I mean, it, it's, and then honestly, you get grazing on top of that. You get plowing up more ground on top of that. There's, there's, uh, it's funny how, I heard that term death by a thousand cuts years and years ago. And now it is clear as a bell to me what's going on now, how to solve it. If anybody has a silver bullet, I don't know, but we're, we're humans in general, you know, we're kind of gluttons and we're getting more spoiled every year. And we want what we want right now. And, uh, I don't know how you ever get back to a simpler world as far as that goes, but there's nothing easy about this. Right. So I want to just add to a couple things Kent said. He meant he mentioned crested wheatgrass and that that, that and some a lot a lot of our listeners w- won't probably know much about that if anything but when in the 20s and 30s during the dust bowl period and this is throughout the western us uh oh people gave up on farming a lot of areas and when they did they planted crested wheatgrass this eurasian grass to hold the soil and this grass has proved proven to be very resilient it doesn't spread a whole lot from where it's planted but boy does it persist so we have a lot of land that was former farm ground in the western u.s that is dominated by this one plant it provides a little grazing value primarily early in the spring but it has a high silicon concentration so it's not much good for for grazing uh, beyond early in the spring and it's kind of a barren wasteland for a lot of different wildlife species that can't can't utilize it so that just a little bit more on on what kent was referring to there Uh, a little more on 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 ventanata Oh, let me start with this by saying this. So when you, Jim, the question you posed was you were asking about the effect of, of fire and, and weed interactions and the, the most, the, the, the paradigmatic example of that is 
an invasive winter annual grass called cheatgrass or downy brome in the Great Basin. In the Great Basin, there are, I, 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 I'm sure, I, I think I'm, I think this is right, millions of acres. I'm sure there's millions of acres there, in, the, yep. in the Great Basin that have, that are essentially cheatgrass monocultures. And, and the, the way that fire plays into that is those, those, those great basins, great basin, basin rangelands are primarily shrublands and they didn't evolve under fire. So when they started getting invaded by cheatgrass, there was all of a sudden more fuel. So this, when these, they started, cheatgrass started becoming a problem. I don't know, early 1900s in the great basin. And so cheatgrass started to invade and uh when it produces a lot of fuel so then when you get some kind of fire it it provides fuel that then intensifies the fire kills shrubs then there's open niches and you get more cheatgrass and then you get another fire and it kills more shrubs and then you have more open niches and it's this cheatgrass fire cycle that ultimately ends up in areas that are completely dominated with cheatgrass and they are very difficult to restore or do anything about i have colleagues that have researched revegetation uh techniques for cheatgrass dominated rangelands in the great basin that after decades of research have concluded that it's just not currently feasible to address these issues with the, with the, our current technology. Wow. They, they actually tr are trying to plant crested in some, we're taught, we're trying to get rid of crested and there are places where they are actually planting crested now to get something established. That's, that's kind of how, bad areas, i guess in areas <laughs> so i have a question for you kent because this is something that i've been wondering about lately and wanting to ask you it's kind of embarrassing that i haven't after like because we've known each other so long and because i work in rangelands i don't really answer this but sage grouse are sage or artemisia or sagebrush obligate Yep. Obligate species. Yep. They can't survive without it. I read a I read a, re, a paper recently that said there's also a bunch of other sagebrush obligate species, and that this paper was making the point that when you when you protect sagebrush habitat for sage grouse, you're also doing a lot of having a lot of benefits for other species. Yeah. So the question I wanted to ask you was: there's a lot of other shrubs on the landscape in the northern Great Plains where we live. Uh, greasewood, rubber rabbit brush, chads, shad scale, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What is it about sagebrush that sage grouse need? So obviously like Wyomiansis, Artemisia Wyomiansis is big sage. Um, that plant lives long. It probably holds snow 
has more cover than a lot of like our greasewood, salt bush, you know, it provides provides a little more thermal, provides better nesting, has better, usually better different soils. So you've got better understory. You got better, you normally you've got better grasses around it for nesting. Okay. Then like say a rabbit brush or a, or a salt bush or a greasewood. And that being said, there are sage grouse. I don't know. Does that answer? Your yeah, question? it does. That's great. I, I mean, yeah. that, that's the thing is a lot of people don't, don't realize how important a lousy big sagebrush plant is. And well, what's the big deal if you burn a thousand acre flat where there's a, uh, uh, 60 bird strutting ground on it, the, Big sage is slow to reproduce by seed. It's not like silver sage. Silver sage is a re-sprouter and, and will really come back with fire. It actually, in places, it likes fire. But um, You kill the plant. You, with, with fire, you kill big sage. You will kill big sage and potentially you lose that that entire stand of a plant that could be a hundred years old and a lek that's hundreds of years old where those birds have come there for a reason. Could you, you know? explain what a lek is? A lek is a, or a strutting ground is a, an area. It's a mating area. It's a display area that has all the right features for sun proximity to nesting areas for the hens those hands that it's evolved and there are leks that are hundreds, if not thousands of years old, those birds are there for a reason. That's another thing that a lot of people don't realize is, well, you, you burn out that lek or you plunk 10 oil wells on that thing. It's going to displace them to an area where guess what? They're there because right now, because predation rates are lower it's in a good site where they can see there's super good residual cover close for nesting hens because those hens are all coming into that lek to get bred and 80% of them are within three miles of that lek. Well, you bounce those birds out into a new chunk and a lot of times, and research has shown it, uh, that the reproduction rate goes down, nesting su success goes down because they're again those hens, they're keyed into that that spot, and a lot of those hens are nesting. They we've had been involved with birds that were collared that will go. They will nest under dang near that same sagebrush plant, wow. three and a half miles from that lek. Yeah, then that any of the researchers will tell you how important that is. So, so there's that component. Now, the the other thing, real quick, sage grouse, they will use silver sage. There are a handful of sage grouse, and they will use other even other sage species. But I think there's seven sage. There, that sounds right. Yeah, Low in, sage, in, Mo black in Montana, sage. yeah, a lot of other states, big. Uh, fringed uh great basin big sage yeah but but they they will use silver but wyomiensis 
Artemisia wyomingensis or Wyoming big sage is preferred throughout the West. Um, yeah, I could, I know more about sage grouse than I probably should, but, <laughs> but they yeah, are there. And I've the got other a sage thing, grouse question for you. The real quick, the other thing I was going to say with sage grouse is they really get a bad rap for being a stupid bird. And they're probably, and fact checkers out there might prove me wrong, but I think they're our longest lived gallinaceous bird, which tells me that those birds, and it's funny when you watch them, you fly them with a helicopter to count them. And I've done it a bunch as dumb as people say they are the reason they say they're dumb they, is because they run into fences right they well they run into fences you can walk up to them to shoot them okay. Da, 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 okay. Da. oh they're walking around in my backyard in the middle of july when it's 110 degrees they're coming to my little my little garden spot well they they those birds are hardy and they have proven themselves over time um so i'm I like sage grouse and obviously we, we've stuck, we stick a lot of money into them and well, but, we'd be losing a lot if we lost them. And, and, and the, on top of that is all the obligates, the, the sage sparrows, the brew, brewer sparrows. There's a ton of uh, migratory birds that are keyed in on that good native sage habitat. Um, anyway, Scott had a question. Sorry to ramble. Oh, no, no worries. So. The more sage grouse talk, the better. Um, one thing I've noticed in a lot of our, our uh, restored crop fields where we've planted, you know, primarily grasses and forbs, there's no sage or anything uh, in them. We see a lot of sage grouse hitting those with their broods. Um, and I was wondering if if there was if if my observations were correct that 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 forb diversity that might be lower, especially with cheatgrass invasions and things, if that's real important to those broods during, during their growing period during the summer. Uh, just for the listener, a forb is a flowering plant. It's not a grass. It's not a shrub. Yeah. It's, it's your little clovers or your legumes or there's no doubt about it. And there again, it, and sage grouse chicks are needle. They feed on forbs and insects, right? Big time. They're right out of the gate when those things are hatched. What they really need is bugs, and then mom gets them into those meadows, and they will. That's another big argument with the non-native folks or the guy that's got a lot of ag or. Well, I, I see sage grouse in my meadows and you guys probably see them in your, some of your forb, are they native or non-native? Na native forbs, but yeah. I would say the, the density is a lot higher than on the native ground just because of the restorations. Yep. And, and they will use um, definitely non-native, even an alfalfa field. If it's bone dry, if it's one of those years that's super droughty, um, the, those, those moms, those hands will take their broods down to those bottoms. Cause honestly, there's usually water. It's either irrigated or sub irrigated. The bugs and the forbs are there. There's no doubt, but they're again out in some good intact country. That's 
got a little bit of wet meadow, they prefer that. Mm. But but yeah, forms once those bird once those chicks get I don't know eight weeks or somewhere in there, they will key in, and those moms, those family groups, will come into those bottoms. To, so mom can really ramp them up for the fall, you know, but bugs right out of the gate, actually even ants, like ants are high protein. Those, those chicks will, then the mom will show them how to feed on, on bugs and ants. And that's cause they're super important right away. But I don't know if that answered your question, but yeah, yeah, it did. I have a question for all, for all three of you guys. Um, and this, this could be a can of worms. We don't necessarily want to go down, but it's a two part question. So do you think sage grouse should have been on the threatened and endangered species list? And if you, if you don't think they should be, how long until it's an absolute, it's, it's certain that they're on the list. Personally, I'm going to defer to, to 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 Kent and 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 Scott if he's got a viewpoint on it. I I I don't know. I don't have a strong sense. That's honestly I hate hate to say it but politics really was a f- driver for that whole thing. Yeah. Now now do we know that there are big issues for sage grouse west wide and habitat fragmentation and predation and regulatory mechanisms? Oh, you know, there's definitely pockets where they probably should have been listed, but they're I mean, that's a huge step to take, and it's kind of like game management in places and politics and socially acceptable and all of that uh, comes into play. You know, Fish and Wildlife Service basically said that regulatory mechanisms were inadequate. There again, agencies had to bump up their land use plans, had to come up with new stipulations, more mitigation, get companies to start plunking more money into it. To um, keep them off the list. Keep them off the list because they yep. were a candidate. You know, they were close. Yeah. They yeah. were super close. Um, yeah, that's that's a. Has their plight improved any since all those measures are put in place? Um, I, yeah, I mean, populations in general, I, 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 they're going to come up again. I'm sure I I, come up for listing. Yes. I will be amazed if they don't come up again for listing. Yeah. It seems like in their core areas, they're doing, you know, they're holding study um, some years, maybe slightly increasing, but when you get on those fringes, of the habitat they're really declining rapidly montana we've really held our own fairly well wyoming not so much and there again fact checkers you might hit me on this but i think wyoming just 
pure population numbers. And Wyoming really has the lion's share compared to most states. Mm. They are way on top for sage grouse numbers. And from the little bit that I'm hearing is their trends are really not good at all. Ours actually are sitting okay long-term or, you know, since even in the last 20 years, but, and I should say long-term, we know that we're dipping. There's no doubt all this stuff going on. And then you got climate stuff going and you got, you know, there's, there's a lot of stuff against that bird. Yeah, and a lot yeah, that's of why I said it's it's a can of worms. We don't have to open, but I, I thinking about it, it's you know seems like it's it's just inevitable that eventually. Yeah. So uh, before we leave the threats bit, I wanted to bring up a, a threat that um, is at the nexus of rangeland threats and access that Kent already alluded to. And that's the, the, the weed issue and the role hunters play in promoting weed invasions. Uh, I think that, you know, given that access is a big, a big uh, concern for, for me, and uh, I am a weed ecologist. I am a rangeland weed scientist. This, the the, uh, the the that there are there is a factor out there that dictates both access and the health of rangelands. I think it's a good thing to dilate on just a little bit. So I'm gonna throw a I'm gonna throw a, a, a vocabulary word at you guys today. I've looked this word up probably six times, and then the next day forgotten it over over the last several several years so i'm just curious if if anybody knows what epizocory is epizocory that is the movement of seed by animals so what i'm referring to here is is hunting dogs and there's a there are you will hear ranchers and farmers talk about their concern with allowing public access that hunting dogs move weed seeds around. Uh, some you know some seeds have structures that have that have that have evolved to allow them to stick in the coats of animals. I'm sure we all know plants like that that have those kinds of seeds. So it's a concern. And also, there's been a lot of studies. I shouldn't say a lot of studies. There's been a handful of studies on ATVs and vehicles over the years where they'll drive a vehicle through, you know, fixed distances, through places that are invaded with weeds. And then they'll measure the weed abundance in the, in the, under the bumpers and, on top of the axles, et cetera, et cetera. And it's an amazing, it can be an amazing amount of seeds. And like Kent was saying, sign up blocks, uh, sign up boxes for block management, uh, place are places that people see 
new invaders showing up. Um, Ventanata, like Kent alluded to, that's another winter annual invasive grass that's very problematic in parts of Idaho and Oregon and I believe Washington. Another one is Medusa head. There's another, yet another invasive annual winter grass that's very problematic in some Western states. And those are two species that are just starting to show up in Wyoming and Montana. And there, you know, it can't be denied that hunters share some part of the blame for those plants getting a, a foothold here. And I guess the reason that this is worth mentioning is, you know, we got to be with all the with all of the obstacles to maintaining hunting access. I think it's important to consider uh, whether or not you might be bringing something on your dog or on your car from another state. And uh, there's <coughs> things you can do. You know, you can check your dog over. You can go through a car wash um, to, if you feel like you have seeds in the understory of your vehicles. So just wanted to throw that out there. Uh, I'm surprised multiflora rose isn't isn't more of a, a problem out there. Yeah, I don't know much about that oh, plant. Yeah. It might be it might just be that it's too dry for it. You know, we were in a yeah. twelve inch twelve inch precip zone. Oh right, yeah. So we have a native rose here, uh, wild rose. I don't remember the scientific name of it, but. That, that, that does well here, but maybe it's just too dry for multiflora rose. So, okay, that's, I guess, does anybody else have anything they want to mention in terms of threats to rangelands? Okay, so maybe we'll move on and talk a little bit about, about bison. And I have a question that I wanted to, <laughs> I want to ask Scott. Um, I I've been wondering, I know there's research on this. What is this what what is the the current consensus if there is one about differences between bison and cattle in terms of their effects on rangeland plant communities and uh wildlife? Yeah, so yeah, the research that I've I've read, um, especially uh, in relation to yeah, plant communities and birds, um, they they can really uh, increase both of those things uh, across the landscape. Um, I think there was some research out of uh, Tallgrass Prairie Preserve in Kansas, which is a different ecosystem than what we have here in Montana, but their their uh, biodiversity uh, in their plants uh, went way up after I believe it's twenty or thirty years of bison grazing. Uh, what we've seen in the research done, kind of in in north central Montana here around the the CMR refuge, is that we're starting to see some of that diversity increase uh, with bison being on on the landscape for about 15 years uh, when compared to neighboring cattle pastures. Uh, and then also using 
parts of the CMR refuge uh, with no grazing in the research to the the biodiversity of plants, insects, birds, you name it, is just tanking uh, with no grazing. Um, and so I th- I think honestly it comes down to to management, um, but but we definitely are seeing those those benefits in the bison pastures, uh, especially in riparian corridors. Uh, yeah, I it might come as a surprise to some people that aren't familiar with these ecosystems that the Great Plains ecosystems that they evolved under grazing and they and biodiverse plant species richness the number of plants per unit area tends to decline with with grazing exclusion uh, and we have long-term data in some of the projects I'm involved with that demonstrates that as well uh the, these these rangelands evolved under grazing and they tend to produce more vet things that society values if they're grazed um so what would what are the mechanisms by which uh bison grazing at the same stocking rate frequency intensity of grazing compared to cattle what what by what mechanisms do they have different effects on plants yeah i would say yeah primarily the way they're they're impacting the landscape is different because of the one the constant movement um our our bison move about average across a year's time span about three and a half miles a day the the cow calf herds do and so you're getting that constant movement, hoof action, uh, things like that. And then on top of it, you're also, you know, bison, they got they have that herd mentality. And so they're the grouping of those animals seems to be much tighter than cattle, which seem to spread out across the landscape a little more. And so you're getting more intense grazing where they are grazing and and less less intense grazing where they're not. And so there's so like so certain areas, certain spots <laughs> compared to cattle grazing, you'll have hot spots that gra- get grazed more intensely one year and then get more rested in other years in a bison grazing situation as compared to cattle, something like yeah. that. Yep. And then then I think uh, the other big thing is the returning woody vegetation in, in draws and drainages, uh, you know, seeing willows and a lot lot more uh sedges rushes uh other other shorter woody species that are showing up because bison are not uh they don't feel heat stress uh until it's real hot and so they're not focusing in on those uh riparian areas where the water is whereas cattle are feeling that heat stress at a much lower temperature and so we're what we see is bison definitely use the riparian areas, but they don't hang in the riparian areas. They go get water and then they leave and go back upland. Okay. So as a, as a research scientist, I feel compelled to ask you how much of this is anecdote and how much of it is based on randomized controlled trials. Um, We're, we're in the middle of some research uh, looking at how much time uh, each species 
cattle, domestic cattle and bison are spending in in the riparian areas. What uh, the kind of preliminary data we've seen and the anecdotal uh, observations is that it's significantly less, um, like like less than fifty percent of the time, uh, cattle are spending or bison are spending fifty percent less time in those areas. Okay, that's interesting. Huh. Um. So, any any thoughts on that, Kent, on the difference between cattle and no? There, I mean, there's not a lot of research out there on it. Um, you well, know, like but... Scott alluded to, I th- I read the abstract for one of those studies that took place in Tallgrass Prairie in and South it, Dakota. I think there was some work. Yeah, they might have been there too. This was in Kansas, I think, is when I was yep. at the Kanza Prairie uh, okay. Research Station there. That, yeah, it was, it's pretty remarkable there. Like the species diversity was something like 80% higher where there were bison compared to no raising at all and fo- compared to f- 40% higher with cattle. So some evidence that's, that's pretty good evidence for that, for that system. But like you said, Scott, the Great Plains are entirely different beast um right yeah yeah and one of the one of the other things with the woody vegetation kind of returning is we are seeing it return at a faster rate in the bison pastures the the cattle grazing pastures it's also returning just at a much slower rate um so it i would say it is improving on on all the the plots that have been studied out out in uh near near the cmr refuge but but the bison pastures uh so far seem to be much quicker uh that leads me to believe that because these lands were before they were acquired by american prairie reserve were grazed with cattle so it leads me to believe if the if woody species are increasing uh under your management that that, that suggests that the grazing regime has that your cattle grazing regime where you're grazing cattle instead of bison is different than the cattle grazing regime that was in place before you guys bought these places. Right. Yeah, we do. Uh, even on our allotments with cattle, uh, we do adjust uh, stocking rates and, and rotations and things like that to try to, to benefit uh, the range as much as we possibly can. Yeah, what I'm excited about is some of this data we're getting right now after, you know, 5, 10, 15 years of bison. What would when in 25, 30, 40, 50 years we can look at the same stuff again and see see what the impacts truly are because I think especially in a dry drier ecosystem things seem to take longer um to change and uh it'll be it'll be interesting to see long term if if there are impacts and what they are. Yeah, so should we talk about bison hunting a little bit? Sure. Jim, what are you figuring out there? Jim's been so, looking into his op- his his options for trying to uh take down uh a tonka. Yeah. So this this podcast got legs when when I was when Matt and I were talking and I this mentioned- episode 
this yeah this, excuse me this episode this podcast episode uh i was telling him i have like i'm gaining points in south dakota uh and come to find out that they bring the bison into a, uh an enclosure it's a a, a thousand or fifteen hundred acre enclosure so it's 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 not really a hunt and that led me to start looking at other opportunities throughout the West. And there's just not a lot of options to hunt free range bison. Additionally, the prices for a tag are just astronomical. So just a brief research. There's uh, four states that you can hunt free range bison in. Uh, that are managed by the state agencies, Arizona, Montana, Utah, and Wyoming. Tags range from $1,250 for a non-resident. That's Montana. Oh, what about Alaska? Alaska, too. Excuse me. Alaska, too. Yes. So it's five. And uh, so $1,250 to the highest at $5,400 for a non-resident tag in Arizona. And Wyoming's a close second wow. at four thousand four hundred fourteen dollars, and wow. even the tag in South Dakota is is thirty two fifty. So and how not, big is this area where these bison are held in South Dakota when you're hunting them? I I think it might be fifteen hundred acres or three thousand acres. They, See, they, there are places. Yeah, at that point, you might as well just. There are ranches that have them here, and they'll let you shoot one. And they and and the going rate, I the going rate around here is about fifteen hundred bucks. Right, and I realize at this point it's it's not a hunt; it's it's a harvest. Well, yeah, I mean, I bet there's some places. I know there's some places where it's it very much feels like a hunt, like that Alaska hunt on the yeah, Copper River. That that's is legit. That is a haunt. Yeah, uh, I have a brother that lives up there, and he he's hunted it four or five times now. Um, and it's the real, it's a real deal. Um, and it's one of the hardest tags to get in Alaska of all tags to get in Alaska. Oh, okay, I, I, every year I lived up there, I put in for it, but I never drew it, obviously. And 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 getting back to the terminology, even APR on your website refers to it as a harvest versus a hunt. Yeah, you yeah, can't so- hunt something inside a fence. Pardon me. You can't hunt hunt something inside a fence. In 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 our opinion. Yeah. Right. Uh, gotcha. Unless yeah. it, unless it's cap- physically capable of. Right. Going yeah. through or under or over the fence, then. Yeah. No. And and what I'll say about our uh, experience is it's it's a little more like a hunt than people expect uh, when they get there. There, you know, a lot of people are expecting to to drive up and uh, lay across the hood and hopefully shoot a bison. But our bison know, uh, know the game and they have places on the property, just like deer and elk, you know, little refugia where they can get out of sight. Um, They're, they're smart critters. And our, the past year we're doing the harvest in is about 27,000 acres. So it's, it's not small and it's not super easy or guaranteed by any means. They're in a 27,000, thousand acre pasture yes 
Oh, come on, Jim. You can make that work. How many right. people put in for your tags? Because it has to be like horrendous draw odds. Uh, you know, actually, the I think we get about for the for the non or non-resident uh, ones. You know, I think we get around three to four hundred, um, and and give out two uh, most years. Uh, in the total drawing, we get about three thousand individuals for anywhere from twenty to thirty opportunities with uh, Montana residents and local residents uh, where we own land uh, getting uh priority uh draw odds for for those opportunities so, so how many acres does does apr own or and manage uh we own and uh lease about 400 it's just over four hundred and fifty-five thousand acres and hunting um, occurs on seventy nine thousand acres yeah, the block management, uh, block yeah. management or other managed hunting. Yeah, we so we've got a hundred and twenty-one thousand deeded acres, and seventy-nine thousand of that is in some form of of either block management or a managed hunt, uh, especially around elk on a couple couple units. So, do you think that moving forward, that there'll be more hunting opportunities on on the other acreage? Um, I think on it it really depends on uh wildlife populations. You know, we want to see wildlife populations grow. So we're trying to balance the the hunting axis with with growing wildlife numbers. Um yeah. and so so that's why uh we have those acres that are not enrolled in anything. Um and and our primary goal here for for hunting access is to provide quality experiences over quantity. So most most of our block management uh, units are in type two block management. So it's a reservation system and there are limits to the amount of people that can, uh, that can go out and hunt. Gotcha. I know you guys get hit up on hunting with hunting questions on podcasts and other forums all the time. So I really appreciate, I mean, this is not like the main focus by any means of the, of this episode, but we just have an opportunity to ask a couple questions. So, Oh, I appreciate you taking the time. You know, it's just like, I, you, maybe you're, there'll be people that listen to this episode that haven't heard of APR or know anything about, about um, what you guys are about. So like, I apologize. If I'm, I'm going to ask questions like probably nauseatingly redundant, but what's the, what do you think the long-term what do you think is going to happen with hunting on APR over the long term? Uh, I don't see it going anywhere. Um, it's always, you know, it's always been part of the human history of the landscape, and and that's our our view on it. I think um, we we want to see more wildlife on the landscape, though, and and as long as uh, we can we can hunt and increase wildlife populations, uh, that's that's our goal. Um, do you have monitoring programs in place to measure population dynamics with mule deer, elk, et cetera? Uh, we, we just, we use FWPs, uh, data, uh, for yeah. Elk, mule deer, pronghorn. Okay. It, and your bison is so successful. I was reading that you have the restoration program where you're sending bison to other places across the country, even East. 
You want to talk about that a little bit? Uh, yeah. So yeah, part of, yeah, the byproduct of having bison is, uh, bison have a lot of babies. And, uh, so how many, yeah. do they have twins a lot? You know, I've, I get asked that question probably 10 times a year and I, and every it's person more prevalent asked, than even the question of whether, how, how much hunting access you allow. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how many people want to know if they have twins. I've asked a lot of people around the country if they've ever seen bison twins and I've never come across anybody that has seen it. Hmm. And it kind of makes sense, you know, evolutionarily, if, you know, if you, if you have one baby and take good care of it, it's probably going to survive when you're that big. So it, it makes a lot of sense to only have one, but you think there'd be a fluke eventually. Um, but yeah, we, yeah, as part of our bison program, uh, we, we've distributed over 500 bison now to other tribes, conservation herds. Um, we've sent some to the national zoo for education stuff, uh, on the East coast. Uh, we're sending some out to Washington, uh, next week, uh, to a herd there. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's fun to grow bison on your own landscape, uh, but then, being able to contribute to, you know, conservation nationally and get more bison on more range is, is really fun part of the job. Jim and I were talking about how, about bison genetics. And Jim was telling me that there's very, they're, they're, they're all, uh, they're all some small part of their genome is bovine. Is that right? Yeah, they they finally sequenced the genome in the past couple of years, and then they also use the genomes of uh, like the five major cattle breeds, like uh, Charley, Angus, um, and those major species, and compared them with uh, really old samples from from all over the country, from founding herds like Elk Island National Park and Yellowstone, and even in samples that are like two hundred years old, they're finding uh, like very very minute uh traces of of the cattle genome uh which is you know looking at a bison as a bison as a bison they even with that tiny tiny percentage they're they're still acting like bison still serving that ecosystem function that they provide yeah yeah like with with uh taxonomists you know they've more and more have gone towards instead of when they're trying to figure out if two species are the same or different have gone towards molecular techniques as opposed to just physical characteristics and uh they use the 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 dna in the mitochondria which is a different is different than than the your cellular dna and uh, the cutoff they they use is, is something like I don't know ninety eight percent DNA homology. If it's if if there's less than that, it's a different species, and that's about what differentiates us from from other primates is like two percent of our DNA. So I mean, yeah. A bison is going to be very much a bison if it's 
if it's 98 or 99 more than probably well, i'm sure more than 99 percent bison right um so what's your favorite what's your favorite if you were gonna stipulate the gender and age of a bison that you were gonna eat what would it be two-year-old female okay yeah some friends of mine just bought a bison and they they bought a three-year-old male and they were kind of disappointed with it i ate it a couple times i thought i was all right but you definitely get a little bit of a jaw workout with it yeah those yeah those two-year-olds are nice you get the yield uh, but you still get kind of that, that more tender quality meat like you would with a, with a yearling or something like that. So, so yeah, they're, they're delicious. Do, uh, do the, do the cows like as a three or a four or a five-year-old cow, not nearly as good as a two-year-old cow, or are they fairly com- comparable with the two-year-old just being slightly better? Uh, I would just say slightly better. Okay. Yeah. All right, fellers, anything else? I, w- I was going to ask some a- another question that might take us down a, 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 a wormhole, but what, what do you think the reluctancy to expand bison population in populations in the West is? Are they, are they just, if they're just too many fences and they're just so destructive or do the cattle operators have too much of a stronghold and they don't want it? It, it just like coming from the East coast and maybe I've romanticized this so much about hunting bison that it's just a fantasy and it will never be what I think it should be in my head. But it just seems like there's freaking so much land out there that's once was occupied by bison that no longer is. So what I'll I'll weigh in real briefly. You couldn't. I mean the the West is fenced off into cattle ranches, and bison don't do good with fences. You couldn't just like be like yeah. We're going to introduce, we're going to throw a hundred of them out in this place and another hundred over there. You're going to be be putting them out in a place that they're eventually going to want to leave and then they're going to be blasting through a fence. It's just the difference between deer or elk or even pronghorn, which struggle with fences, and bison in my mind, the biggest difference, there are others, but what difference, what makes humanity more able, more willing to cope with wild populations of deer or elk or antelope than bison is that bison and fences are, are incompatible. Right. That's my take. What do you think, Ken? I guess the one thing that I am all about is bringing back the natives and American Prairie has, has 
that's your mission, which is awesome. And I commend American Prairie for that. Bison are a super cool critter. They're obviously big. Montana has gotten this big spotlight over the years from people around the U.S., people in other countries. So the part that I struggle with is, is whenever you have one large-scale entity with a huge dollar amount behind this to make it the last Serengeti and you got a critter that was at one time there were a bajillion of them running around out here now we've evolved we can't hardly deal with our elk numbers we can't hardly deal with we got enough issues with livestock I think bison has their place and I think APR has their place, but to get this, when, whenever you get big money and all this conglomeration of this, this full steam ahead to buy these big places and to, to try to, I mean, then, then honestly, you would have to basically get rid of all the fence, get rid of all the man-made stuff, which yeah. we're to the point now where the man-made stuff, you're even from a water development standpoint. I mean, there, there's, I, I like what APR does, but I think there's got, there's got to be some kind of a limit to it. You know what I mean? I mean, I, would I love to go back to Lewis and Clark days? That'd be awesome. Are we, we're just so far beyond that. And, and I got to be honest, I, I have that whole side to me. I grew up in the country, grew up on a farm, like the ranch kid. And, it, and it's hard to see some of those places basically go away. You know, like that ranch that maybe could have been handed down now gets plucked up and is has got is it's all tied. It I hate to say it, but it, it comes back to money. I, I I like the mission, but it comes back to money. I don't and I don't I'm not saying the government should maybe <clears throat> try to step in and you know, whether it's the refuge or a park or, uh, you know, it, that part of it is, it, it, it's tough. I, I just, I, I don't know what the answer is. So I, I get what you're, what you're, to paraphrase, let me, tell me if I'm getting this right. In your mind, making more bison habitat means acquire, acquiring more land. Oh, man. And, do and it right. attributing it and, and, and devoting it to bison. To do this right. And, I mean, APR has told me that. You guys need a lot more ground to really get to where you're going. Right? Right. Oh, 100%. A lot yep. more ground. And where you're going. So, when, when Ken says where you're going, what what's meant by that is, a free ranging bison herd, right? 
Right. A, a big enough landscape where they can, you know, per, move naturally across the landscape with fire, <laughs> weather events, uh, things like that as, as much as possible. I mean, all this is in it's yes, it's, uh, the pictures of Lewis and Clark are, are grand and everything, but it's Lewis and Clark in a modern context. Um, right. You know, there's always going to be cattle ranches out there. There's always going to be some buildings. There's always going to be some water development. I mean, Fort Peck Reservoir is right in the middle of where we're right where we're working. Um, and that's not going anywhere. Um, and so I think, I think, yes, it's, it's, it's as much as we can do in a modern context. So, uh, working towards those higher wildlife populations, working towards more bison on the landscape, and letting all those those animals move as freely as possible um, within within laws, rules, regulations uh, that are that are present. Um, and and back to uh, Jim's question with the uh, the views on bison, um, I think. I think the main uh, two main things uh, really get people fired up about having more bison on the landscape. And it's one, it's, it's competition for grass. I mean, there's only so much grass you can grow on a landscape. Um, And if, if you, if a producer wants that to be cattle or sheep or something else, uh, every mouthful that comes off in an elk's mouth or a pronghorn's mouth or a bison's mouth is competition. Uh, and the other thing is the disease issue around brucellosis um, that uh, you know persists in Yellowstone National Park, but nowhere nowhere else in the country do bison have brucellosis. And so it's it's largely a myth, but it's a myth that's been perpetuated for for generations that that bison kind of harbor these diseases, and it's just not true. Yeah, I, I read where it's sixty percent of the females have it. But it's like smallpox. Like if, if if you tested humans, there'd be a large percent that that have have traces of it, but couldn't give you give smallpox. But it's it's down to like ten or fifteen percent that would actually transmit brucellosis. And that's in the Yellowstone herd, and and not in any of the other herds, right? So, so one last question. So. The grazing allotment, uh, there was appeal from the state of Montana. Is is that still ongoing or or is that finalized? Uh yeah, the appeal is ongoing. Um, it's looking like it's gonna be a year-long process. Uh, could you however, start from could you start from the beginning with this? So, so yeah, yeah, t- yeah, like just pretend we know nothing about this if you wouldn't mind. Okay. Yeah. So 2017, uh, American Prairie applied for a change of use request uh, with the BLM, which means we we uh, asked on our grazing allotments that, that we have uh, the leases on, we requested to change the management from cattle to bison to year-round grazing. Let me, let me, go, let, let me, go, let me go back just even one more tiny level. Mm-hmm. The land you own and manage, there's BLM land mixed in with it. It's like sixty-three thousand acres of BLM land. Yeah, just yep. for the listener. Um, so there's BLM land mixed in with it, and 
there's a permitting process that uh, if you want, if anybody that has that wants to graze their livestock or bison or whatever on those lands, well, bison are managed like livestock. Uh, there's a permitting process you have to go through to do that. And that's what we're talking about now. Yep. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, with those permits, uh, there, you know, you have to follow a certain management plan and in order, if you want to change something, you have to go through a public process to do that. And, uh, it's called an environmental assessment. And so we, we applied to the BLM, sent them a proposal saying we wanted to switch to bison management on certain allotments from cattle from cattle and we wanted to change the the grazing from rotational grazing to uh year-round grazing um and also adjust the stocking rates accordingly and so in 2017 we did that uh there was a a lot of concerns brought forth uh by the public primarily the ag community and to address some of those concerns, we uh, pulled back our proposal, made it much smaller to the 63,000 acres that Jim is referencing, and also went away from the year-round grazing uh, to a different uh, pasture configuration, but rotational grazing uh, to address the concerns that we were hearing. Uh, and it's been it's been through the analysis through the public comment periods the blm uh issued their final decision which was to grant us the proposed changes uh to bison grazing then uh the last step to this whole process is if somebody if there's a substantive reason uh that uh that this could cause harm and somebody doesn't agree with the decision the BLM made, you can appeal it. Um, and so that's what the state of Montana is doing. They're appealing it um, on the grounds of that the Taylor Grazing Act, which is a whole nother can of worms, uh, does not apply to bison. Also that um, the analysis was incorrect and bison will essentially cause harm to the landscape the way we want to manage them. Uh, however, uh, they also request, the state requested a stay to be put on um, the decision. So once the decision was final, American Prairie, we could move forward in acting the changes while this appeal period goes forward. The state asked a judge to not allow that. The judge ruled against the state, and so we can move forward with the proposed changes um, to fences, and then uh, putting bison out on the allotments in the spring while the appeal's happening. So that's that's it in a nutshell. Interesting. So do you do you anticipate? that a decision is going to be made anytime soon and um all all the attorneys involved uh are looking at at least a year um is what they're saying for this whole process to play out it, it goes to the interior board of land appeals uh, which is a panel of judges and uh they will rule on whether the appeal is warranted or not 
Gotcha. Well, that's interesting stuff. I guess I'm going to have to keep uh, keep applying for 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 points and and figure out if I'm going to hunt or harvest a, a bison <laughs> in the future. Yeah, yeah, you might have to. Yeah. Where, where's your Where's yeah. your best odds, Jim? Oh man, I, you know what? I have six points in South Dakota, so if I want to go and shoot one in a in an enclosure uh, in South Dakota, I, I could still do that, but I, I realize my options are limited unless I want to take a small loan out and and try to get a tag in in Arizona and Wyoming. Yeah, with the tags that expensive, you don't know if you hope you draw it or not. Yeah. <clears throat> All right, fellas, anything else? Well, thank you for taking the time. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, appreciate it.